This morning, we're not in Romans. Curveball. Um, we are actually going to be in Ephesians. So, sorry guys. We'll get back to Romans next week. So if you could direct your attention to the Word of God, we're going to be in Ephesians 4, 1 through 3. Hear the Word of the Lord. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. And all God's people said, Amen. As was already mentioned, um, yes, as you see, I'm since we were gone this week, I realized there wouldn't be enough sufficient study time to prepare for Romans that we've been in. So this is the message I have preached. I've prepared this last year for a conference I preached at, but I've been wanting to, pre- to preach it here. And this is the perfect time because it's a time in Romans where we've, we're, turning a, a, we're turning a corner. And so up to chapter 11, we've dealt a lot with theology and the doctrine of salvation by grace through faith in Christ alone. And, and now... We will, in a sense, turn the corner, and Paul says, now that you have Christ, now that you have trusted him as your Savior, and you've been changed by his grace, how do you live? How are you going to live? How are you going to live this out? And so, one of the biggest things that we see throughout the Bible in the New Testament is this call by the apostles to the church to live in unity and harmony that equates to love, loving one another, as we're also in that series in Sunday School. So, man, what a time it is for us to hear this call to fight for unity, and we're going to see why we need to do that. But let's, let's just today think about unity for a minute. What is unity? And the Bible says in Psalm 133, verse 1, it's a good thing, right? Behold, how good and how pleasant it is for brethren and sistren to dwell together in unity. It's glorious. But what is unity? Well, of course, we all know that unity is when everyone agrees with you because you're right. <laughs> <laughs> so that's, like, that's, that's kind of what we think, right, when we think of unity and agreement, right, and, and harmony. It's like the two old Quakers who were sitting up on a high hill, uh, just shooting the breeze one day, looking over their town down there, you know, and one of them said to the other, he said, you know, you know sometimes I think that everyone in the world is a, a bit off except for me and thee, and sometimes I worry about thee. And, and, and that's, that's how we are, right, as, as humans. We tend to think, okay, we've got it together. We, 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 we know what's up. Everybody else is nuts. Everybody else needs to get right. It's funny, right, when you're single. And uh, when I was single and living by myself, I had no flaws. I, just, 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 life was good. Then I got married. And all of a sudden, I had a lot of flaws. I, I just, just a lot. I mean, I never knew before I got married that, that there was a right way to put the toilet paper on the roll, the toilet paper on the holder. I didn't know that. I didn't know I was wrong. I didn't know I had a flaw in that area. I, I, didn't, I didn't know it was the crime of the century to throw your socks on the floor. I didn't know that until I got married. I didn't know I was so flawed. Uh, man, I, I mean, gosh, I won't even go on and on about the bathroom rules, but there they are, right? The, the toilet seat rule, right? Do not wet on the toilet seat. So, so, so put the seat up. That's the, so, okay, put the seat up. 
I get it. Didn't know it. Then I find out, wait a minute, why do you leave the toilet seat up? Put the seat down. <laughs> so I put the seat down. I didn't know that going to the bathroom was like going to the Catholic church. Up, down, up, down. <laughs> just, just kidding. I should have said that. Forgive me. <laughs> wow. We should be in Romans right now. But, <laughs> but what we... What we learn, though, really, in all honesty, what we learn in marriage is this truth that when you put two different people together from two different backgrounds who are both sinners, you are going to have conflict. When you, when you put two people in close proximity together who are from different backgrounds and have different sins because they're sinners, you're going to have conflicts. Now multiply that times two to three hundred in a church, and you're going to have a lot of fun. Right? You, you, you get a group of people from different backgrounds, different ideas, and they all are sinners. They're all selfish. They're all thinking the same thing. Man, I am right. What is wrong with these people? Why don't they all think like me? And Paul knew this. He knew himself, and that's why the apostles so often admonished the church, live in unity, be in harmony. Love one another. Put yourself to the side for the glory of Christ and his, and his church. And so that's, that's what we're seeing today in, in, in this passage. So if, if and we, we see it, if unity is such a great thing, if unity and harmony is such a wonderful situation, why don't we see more of it in our marriages, in our workplace, and in the church? And, and again, as I've already hinted at, the answer that most of us are going to have is because everybody else is crazy. That's why everybody else is wrong. And it's them that need to be fixed. But that's not what we see in James chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. Notice what James tells us about why we have no unity. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. This is it. It's us. Like the old comic strip said, I've seen the enemy, and he is me. And this is what James is telling us. The reason we cannot get along, the reason we have such disunity in the church is because of us. Our sinful desires, our selfishness, we want that position. We want that notoriety. We want that uh, acclaim to being right. We want the glory. So we fight and we down, you know, we talk about other people, put them down so that we look better. We gossip, we slander. That's what we see here in James because of our selfishness. So, so what we learn from Scripture is that unity is not natural. Rivalry is. For the human nature, for the human heart, unity is not natural. Rivalry is natural. Making enemies of each other is natural. Being jealous of each other, that's natural. That's part of the sinful flesh. That's what we see at the very beginning with Satan. The rivalry between him and God started when Satan said, I deserve that. I deserve to be on that throne. I deserve people to say how great he is. How great are you, Lucifer? And that, 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 that's the pride, the arrogance, the root of all sin that we have. We see it in the garden. When Adam and Eve, made in the image of God, made to look 
to him first and foremost, to bring him glory, to live in beautiful harmony together with each other and with the creation, to bring God glory. But what happened? I want to be like God. I want to know things. I want to be the one who's in charge. And sin entered into the world. And from that moment on, the woman's desire was for the man, it says. And that's not a good desire. That was a desire to take his power. A desire to say, no, I'm in charge. I don't like what God's developed here. I don't like the fact that Adam was made first. That Adam had all of this inside information from God about this world. And then he made me as a helpmate for Adam. That together we would both have dominion over this world the way God instituted it, but I don't like that. I want to be the one in charge. And the man in his sinfulness with apathy to say, yeah, okay, I don't care. I'm tired anyway. I don't care about what happens to the family. I just wait and see what happens. I'll just live life, go out, work, come home, just take it as it comes. If my kids turn out good, that's good. That's all sin, folks. That's all selfishness. And yet God calls us to live in unity together, beginning again with the the most intimate relationship on this earth, husbands and wives putting themselves aside for the other person so that they can live in unity and harmony together to glorify God and to have dominion on the earth, to be fruitful and multiply, and then to train their children to bring glory to God. That is what God intended for society. And yet sin enters in and we're selfish and we want what we want and we begin to fight. So what do we need to do? We have to, instead of fight each other for our selfish desires... We need to fight for unity. We have to really fight for it. That's what we see in our text today. Let's look at it again as we see this this call from from Paul to, to live in unity. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, forbearing one another, eager, to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Eager to maintain the, the unity in the bond of peace. That word eager, spadazo in the Greek, this, this word literally means to put great effort into something, right? To, to, to hard, hard work. I put hard work into this. To literally fight for something. Be so intentional to be aggressive about it, to fight for unity. That's what we have to do. Remember, it's not natural in a church for us to get along. (laughs) Glenn said it today in his class. It's not natural for us to love each other. We're not lovable, for one thing. But we're to fight for that, to be intentional about that. Now, let me just put a caveat here. We're not just to fight for unity on the surface just for the sake of unity because that is misunderstood in our culture today to compromise (laughs) compromise everything for unity. just go along to get along that's not what paul is meaning here i like what charles spurgeon reminds us that we do not compromise truth for the sake of peace he said this on all hands we hear cries for unity in this and unity in that But to our mind, the main need of this age is not compromise, but conscientiousness. First purity, then peace. So I just want to make sure we understand, as believers founded on the Word of God, what we are basing our peace and our unity on. We'd never base peace and unity, this idea of, let's just go along to get along, 
on compromising truth in order to have, quote, peace. That is not peace. True peace and true unity is founded on truth. Think about how Paul did this in Romans and now in Ephesians. He does this in all of his writings. The first few chapters, especially like here in, in Ephesians, chapters 1 through 3, Paul gives, a, uh, he gives us the specific audience he's writing to and the truth, the doctrine, the theology upon which that audience is unified around, and then he moves to the practical. So let's just think about this. Uh, Ephesians, 1 through th- uh, Ephesians 1 through and 4, he's, he's telling us the audience, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he... Hello. Even, keep looking, don't, as a test, keep your focus. Even as he has chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. This is who Paul is writing to. Those who have been chosen, the elect of God, saved by Christ, his grace, their faith is in him. That's the audience. So again, we're not just saying to a bunch of people, sinners in the world, just get along. That's not what he's saying. The audience, first and foremost, is believers, those who have been saved out of the world, transformed by the gospel. Then he tells the truth upon which we we stand. What is this glorious truth upon which we stand? Ephesians 2, 8, 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It is a gift of God, not the result of works, so that no one may boast, so that no one will brag. So again, this foundational truth and doctrine of God is sovereign. He is sovereign in all things. He is sovereign in our salvation. And it's by grace through faith in Christ that we stand, that we can do anything. So the the truth is laid out. And now in chapter four, he moves from from doctrine to duty, if you will. He moves from uh, credenda to agenda, if you will. He, He moves from what we know, truth, to what we show, our lifestyle. Do you see that? Basically, what you believe, the truth you believe, determines the way you behave. What you believe determines how you behave. And so, that's what we're entering into very quick. Let's just look at this. Five things he shows us in this text. Five foundations for unity. For those who believe on Christ, have been changed by his grace, we believe the truth, the doctrine that he has proclaimed to us. Here's how that makes us live. Here's what that will do. It will cause you to serve others. It will cause you to come and clean up accidents. It will cause you to think of others and say, well, how can I serve, right? We will put into action what we know is truth. So notice this, Ephesians, as we look back at Ephesians 4, 1 through 3, says this, I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Everybody here, by the way, everybody here who loves Christ, your whole mentality has been changed about who you are and who God is. He is now the master. You are now the servant. That's a miracle. And everybody that's in that condition has been called by God. This glorious truth. And then we're called to something, not just called out of hell and into heaven. We're called to live a certain way. Walk worthy, walk lifestyle, right? Behavior, walk worthy of that calling, which you've been called. How do we do it? With all humility and gentleness. There's the first pair. With all humility and gentleness. With patience and forbearing. That's the second pair. We forbear with one another in love. That's the fifth word. Love. 
And we're going to put all these together. But all of that lifestyle, all of that has to be intentional. We got to fight. We got to be eager to maintain that in this body. It takes effort. It takes thought. It takes action. It takes sacrifice. And it takes the Holy Spirit. It takes God's grace. So let's notice this very quickly, these, these five things. Humility, that first word humility, that's a word we don't like much, right? This idea of humility. It's the opposite of pride. Humility is the opposite of pride. And the Greeks, they didn't like that. They never used their word for humility in a positive way for a Greek. It was never positive. Humility was a downgraded thing. It was something weak. But pride and arrogance are the very root of the rivalry between God and man and man and man. It's, it's, the, root, it's the root. Pride and arrogance. Thus, humility is this doorway to reconciliation. It really is. If you are two proud people, <laughs> again, married people know this, right? Hello. If we're both proud and selfish and stubborn on our way, how much headway are we going to make at having peace? None. We're just going to keep escalating and escalating and uh, proving our way, proving that we're right, winning that argument. Therefore, the only hope for peace in conflict with sinful humans who are proud, the only hope is humility, a surrendering of the right to be right. Wow. Listen to this. When you think about this, it really does open a lot in our hearts to understand how God saved us. Humility is the doorway to grace and forgiveness. Humility is, that, is really the only doorway into grace and forgiveness. Without humility, none of us would be saved. John Stott puts it like this. The word Paul uses here for humility means lowliness of mind. The humble recognition of the worth and value of other people. The humble mind which was in Christ and led him to empty himself and become a servant. So literally, what we're seeing here is that Christ made peace between God and man through humility. Humility is the doorway of grace and forgiveness. We must humble ourselves. Obviously, we must humble ourselves and admit that we're sinners in need of a Savior. We've got to humble ourselves to our spouse and say, hey, even if I'm right, who cares? I love you and I will serve you. And as we see in Philippians 2, 5, and 8, humility was the key of Christ coming to this world. I don't understand any of this as human beings. But look what it says. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Again, the only way, only way we're ever going to have humility, the only way we're ever going to back down from a fight is to have the mind of Christ in us because our minds will never do it. Our fleshly minds will never back down. We must have his mind in us. Though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. This is something we do not understand as human beings. The hypostatic union of God and man. The God-man. 
And yet without it, we have no hope of salvation. The fact that God humbled himself and put on flesh to save us. Therefore, Christ made peace with God through humility. He humbled himself to, to death, even the death on the cross. And this is what he calls us to do. Take up your cross every day, folks. Husbands, wives, children, <laughs> church members. Take up your cross every day and crucify your selfishness. Die to your right to be worshipped. Die to your right to be right. Die to your right to win the argument. Are you willing to do that for the sake of truly loving someone else? Not, not, none of this means we compromise truth. I already said that. But we approach it in such a way that meekness and grace are the forerunners of that truth into the hearts of the person we're talking about, not just our great intellect and our argumentative skills. Gentleness was that second word, right? Humbleness, meekness, gentleness is the word meekness. To be meek, the quality of moderation is what that is. To be meek is not weak. Again, that's popular, right? Oh, if you're a meek man, you're a weak man. No. Aristotle called meekness the golden mean. The middle ground, basically, between being too angry and not angry enough. There's this balance, and that is meekness. I mean, this word meekness that we see in the Bible, this, this word was used for domesticated animals, to explain a, a domesticated animal. He's meek. Think about this, a, a mighty stallion that is captured, right? A, a horse, and he's broken. That horse, that horse that has all of these muscles and strength, I mean, he could pulverize a human with his feet and with his powerful legs. And yet once he is made meek, all of that power is still there. All of that strength is still there. But it's now power under control. That's meekness. And that's what we're to have with each other. Yes, we have the power in our tongues to kill each other. Literally. That's what James says. We have the power. Sure, you have the power in your tongues to just obliterate, obliterate, obliterate. I have too much power. My tongue just keeps talking. But no, I, I mean, we, you know, we, we do. We have this power to just hurt someone terribly. And yet for the believer, we say, no, 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 no. Meekness means, Lord, I want you to be seen. I want your truth, not my ability to win this argument, to be seen. Therefore, I'm going to be gentle and humble for the sake of unity. Patience and forbearance were the next two words. Patience and forbearance. And then, by the way, hey, how many of you love these things, right? How many of you just couldn't wait to hear about more patience in your life and more humility and, and more gentleness and meekness, right? And forbearing somebody, putting up with, that's my translation, put up with each other. Tolerate. That's what forbearance is. Patiently tolerating each other. Now, we talk a lot about tolerance in our society. Got to be tolerant. And that definition is not the definition, a biblical definition. Tolerance in the world means agree with everything. <laughs> nothing is really right or wrong. Everything is right. And obviously, if everything is true, nothing is true. That's just logically a fallacy. No, real tolerance, real tolerance means I will allow you to disagree with me 
totally have a different viewpoint and I'll let you live. <laughs> now that's, I mean, that sounds great, but that is really the definition of tolerance. I will hear you have a totally different viewpoint than me. I will then speak my view and we will walk away alive. <laughs> we will not be so angry that we just fight to the death and label each other monsters and, and, and try to destroy each other's reputation. You see what, what, what tolerance and forbearing each other is. It's hard, all of this stuff, right? Unity. This is what unity is in the church. This is hard. Again, folks, if you were in Sunday school, you were, you were reminded that it's not just hard, it's impossible for human beings. It's impossible. That's why that fifth word is so important, folks. The fifth word in this passage, love, is not just thrown in there because it sounds good. Paul doesn't say, well, I always throw love in there. Let's throw that in there. Patience, humility, and love. No, 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 folks. Love is the glue that holds all of those things together. Love is not just the glue that holds them together. It's the very means of accomplishing those things. Without love, we cannot be patient with our brothers and sisters. Without genuine love, I will not be gentle. I will not forbear. Therefore, love is that very glue that holds all this together. And if we don't love each other, then we will never have unity in this church. And if you don't genuinely love your wife and genuinely love your husband, you'll never have unity. This, here it is. This is hard for all of us. We need to hear this. The reason right now in your marriage there is such friction and there is such hostility and there is such embedded bitterness is because you do not truly love your spouse. That's what we're seeing here. Move it to the church. The reason you're angry and jealous and bitter at people in this church and you're not forbearing them, not being patient with them, not being gentle with them, is because you do not love them. Period. Colossians 3.14 says, Above all these things, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony, unity, so I'm not making this up. This is God's word to us. Love is the glue. It is the power source. It is the means whereby we can be humble and gentle and patient and forbearing with each other. And here's the key. It's a command. It's a command. Love is a command for us. Look, again, look... 1 John 4, 19 through 21. Again, you heard it again in Sunday school. Again, this is why we're doing this, because we're trying to stay together in, in, in a theme. But listen to what, what John tells us that Jesus does to, to, to us. We love because he first loved us. So again, to love each other is impossible. We cannot do it. We would never do it. And the only reason anybody does love another person in this world is because God loved them first. And it is the love of God in us that allows us to love each other. We love because he first loved us. Now listen, if anyone says, I love God, and everybody says that, don't they? 
I mean, I, I, so many counseling sessions I've had. Everybody, oh, I love God. I love Jesus. Oh, I love Jesus. I just hate my husband. Love God, love Jesus. I just hate these church members. You know, that, that kind of statement. So this is what we're going to deal with here. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother or sister, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother or sister whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And look, this commandment, this commandment we have from him. Whoever loves God must also love his brothers and sisters, wife, husband, children, neighbors. You think, I can't do it, I can't do it. I know. I just want to make three quick applications and then a few other things. <laughs> but I had to get your attention again because you're like, oh, good, he's almost done. Okay, hang in there. But we are. Really, just three things that kind of help us to be humble, to be gentle, to be patient, to be tolerant with our wives and husbands and children and church members and so on. Three unifying concepts that if we can grab these concepts, I think it will help us. And I think these are at the heart of what Paul is saying to the church. Number one, understand that I am not right about everything. And even when I am right, I don't have to win the argument. Man, what a concept that if a church grabbed this, we would see such a love and a unity. I don't, I, first of all, not that I, it's not a question of that I don't have to be right. Folks, let me just clue you in. You're not always right. <laughs> so I got to understand that I'm not right about everything. I'm a flawed human being. And then even when I am right, this attitude of love in us and humbleness and humility and forbearing means that even when I am right, I don't have to win at that moment that argument. I mean, the illustration I use here, my poor son-in-law, Corey Ramsey, um, he's a good guy. <laughs> I love you, brother. So anyway, this, he married Lindsay and... Uh, Lindsay was so excited. This is like the first few weeks of, of their, their marriage, I guess, first month or two. And Lindsay was so excited about cooking for her husband. You know, so she, while he was at work, she called mom and, hey, I need some recipes. So mom gave her this recipe of fish. I think it was uh, something cheese, something, uh, what, uh, it doesn't matter, does it? But it had like cheese, cheese on fish or something. <laughs> that sounds horrible. Okay, what's the name? What? Name the name. Huh? Parmesan crusted fish. There you go. That's much better. <laughs> Proper translations are important. <laughs> so, that sounds really good to me. So, she slaved all day. She got the ingredients. She worked. She worked. She made this beautiful meal of Parmesan crusted, crusted fish, crusted fish. And uh, was ready, ready to go. And she's making finishing touches. Corey gets home from work. Comes in, smells fish. Kind of sees her working. And proceeds to make his own dinner. <laughs> yes. So whatever it was, all of peanut butter and jelly, I don't know. But he, he puts something together. Sits down. Begins to eat. She sits down. 
and melts down, right? I mean, it's just awful. And I get a phone call that next week from Corey. We need lunch. So we go to lunch. He starts talking. I got a problem. Yep. <laughs> so, so the whole thing was talked out, and, and he understood. Why, well, at first he's like, what in the world's wrong with this? What is wrong with you, woman? What is the deal? But then he realized, and he began to learn. And there's the more we talk about it. And I love what he said at the very end. This is really the whole theme of this illustration that, I, that I'm using. We get done with that whole story about explaining how she worked all day and did, did her best and put it out there. Da, da. And here's what he said. I should have ate the fish. Yes! <laughs> he got it. He got the whole point. Right, I should have ate the fish. <laughs> and, and folks, sometimes you just got to eat the fish, right? <laughs> That's the idea here. I could be right. I, I, I don't like fish. I like what I like, blah, blah, blah. Eh, sometimes you just eat the fish. <laughs> and, and we trust God to use us patiently in that person's life to continue to bring truth at perfect times that God has ordained to bring that truth. But we don't have to win every argument at every time. So there's a, what a spirit. If we can grab that idea that I, I'm not always right, and even when I am, I don't have to push it right then and right there. That will bring God great glory. Number two, understand that everything is not an essential. Now this applies to, especially to young preachers, but everybody, right? Everything is not an essential doctrine. Everything is not essential to be done right now. It's kind of similar to the first, but, but the reason I say this is, is when I was a young preacher, I so much wanted to say there when I was a young warthog. I don't know why. <laughs> I guess that's a Disney movie. Uh, but anyway, <laughs> sheesh, we should be in Romans. But when I was a young preacher, everything was an essential. Every doctrine was essential. I don't care what it was, a third tier tertiary doctrine. or Who cares? It's essential. And I'm fighting for it. Man, everything that was taught, I, I would preach. I mean, women cannot wear slacks. Did you guys know that? I, and I would preach that. You cannot go to movies. Everything was essential to me. And I would fight for it. And, 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 and that's a silly example, but what, what, what happens in churches is sometimes we do the same thing, right? We have our ideas of something, and it's essential. And we're going to fight because it's so essential. Folks, everything's not essential. Do you know what's essential? Christ. Christ is essential. And the thing that breaks churches up is this right here, non-essentials. Most churches split out of, okay, let me reword that, out of the majority of churches that do split, few of them split over orthodox doctrine. They split over non-essentials, silly Selfish things. Church in Kentucky, this is a true story. Church in Kentucky, years and years ago, little pastor there, got a phone call. Guy says, hey, I want to donate this baby grand piano to your church. Oh, how glorious. Thank you. Wonderful. Lord provides. What did they do? As a small little Baptist church, you know what they did? They had a business meeting to vote. To vote on what? To vote on which side of the stage the piano would go on. Would the piano go on the right side? Or would it go on the left side? It was almost split right down the middle, 50-50, almost. But by a little few votes, the left side won, and the right side left. Literally split the church. You're talking about non-essential. But you know what you see there? You see pride, arrogance, selfishness, a denial to actually obey the Word of God, a sin in not keeping God's command to love one another, and that's what Paul's worried about. That's what Paul's saying. Church, love each other. 
fight for unity. It takes effort to stop and think when you're about to go yell at something, somebody about something, stop and think, is this really essential? 10,000 years from now when we're in heaven, is it going to matter what side of the stage the piano was on? Or is it going to matter if I win this particular debate? No. What matters 10,000 years from now? That Christ is exalted supreme. That's what matters. And it brings God great glory when we can die to our own silliness in order to see Christ uplifted first and foremost. And that we can admit that we and our things are the non-essentials, but Christ is essential. So let's live for that unity. Let's fight for that unity. Number three, we have to understand that everyone who disagrees with you is not your enemy. Everyone who disagrees with you is not your enemy. That's the world we live in right now. If you disagree with somebody today, you are the enemy. Man, and you are destroyed and filleted online and on social media. You're, 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 you're talked about at work or at church or whatever. I mean, wherever the groups are that, that, that think you're the enemy. It happens, folks, in the church conferences, denominations. Somebody doesn't agree exactly on a certain doctrine, they're the enemy now. Years and years of faithful gospel proclamation from a pastor can be undone by one non-essential, if we're honest, statement about culture, and that guy is now listed as a heretic. Folks, everyone who disagrees with you is not your enemy. That's, that's not tolerance. The world we live in has no tolerance. Either you agree with me or you are a monster. And folks, if we are going to be consistent with the Bible as Christians, we have to remember that if a person in our world today disagrees with truth, the truth of Scripture, let's say. Let's say it is the truth of Scripture. Let's say it is something that, man, this is, this is what the Bible teaches. But this person, they don't agree with it. We have to remember this. They're not our enemy. They're God's enemy. That's true. But here's, here's the catch. Before we get holy, high, and mighty, we have to realize that you and I were once enemies of God as well. That's just how we approach people in the church and outside the church. We approach them with a humble, meek, patient, tolerant spirit, knowing that it is only by the grace of God that I know anything that's true, that I know Christ himself, that I was his worst enemy, my pride, my arrogance, my selfishness. I deserve to be in hell. And yet by his mercy, patience, and grace, he revealed his son to me and he saved me by his grace. You see that? This is what 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11. What does it say? Very quickly, it says, or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? So again, in this message, do not ever interpret what I'm saying today that we begin to say, oh, there's no, no more preaching against sin. No, we're not saying it. The Bible's plain. Listen to what it says. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? We have to proclaim that. That is loving people. Letting them know that, hey, unrighteous sinners will not inherit God's kingdom. But his wrath instead. Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers 
will inherit the kingdom of God. That's truth. That's God's word. But look at the next verses, verses 9 through 11. And such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. So you are different now. Therefore, we can disagree and still love each other. We can be patient. Think about this. This is what Paul's calling us to be, right? And we can do this. We can be patient. We can, we can be meek. We can be forbearing with one another. But here it is. And we can love each other. But here, here's how. Only by the grace of God's Holy Spirit that works in us. That's, that's it. That's why, that's why Paul prefaces all of what he said here in chapter 4 with chapter 3, verses 20 and 21. This is what comes right before this command to love each other. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Paul precedes this command by laying down the true foundation of how we can do it. And here it is. Think about this. When we read this verse, we normally think of, of just all kinds of stuff. To him who's able to do far more abundantly than we ask or think. Oh, we can win the playoffs. We can win the Super Bowl. We can have some gigantic $5 million building built. He can do all these things. That I, I'm going to go off on a, out on a ledge here and say, I do not think Paul was thinking about any of that stuff. You know what he was thinking about? What, what are these things that are abundantly above all that we could even dream of? in our wildest imagination, loving my wife enough to admit I'm wrong and repenting of the way I've just ignored her for years. Loving that church member who made me so mad <laughs> that I just enraged, thought about them and thought about them and what I could say to them and, and yet saying, wait a minute, not, not me, but Christ. I must decrease. My desire to win this? No, no, no. I want Christ to be glorified. You know what? That's beyond the imagination of human beings. We can't do that. It's beyond our power. It's above all that we could ever ask or think. But God can do that and does that through His Holy Spirit working in us, which is the evidence that we are saved. Whew. Okay, gotta hurry. I know. The evidence of our salvation is not that we proclaimed a great testimony and that we were baptized in front of people and that our name's on a church roll. The evidence that we are saved is that we have a genuine love for other people and we can forgive and we can show grace and we can be merciful and meek. That, that's a miracle because all of that is against human nature. And when you start seeing humans who are incapable of living like that, living like that, glory to God. You see that? That's, that's when he sees, that's when Jesus said, hey, they'll see your good works. They'll see your good works and they're, they're going to glorify God who is in heaven. Why? Because you can't do that. That's the good works, by the way. This kind of stuff right here that Paul's talking about. That, this is the hard work of the Christian. So again, um, in closing, let's just, re let's just review and ask God as we're reviewing his word to give us the grace to do these things. 
verses one, or verses one through three of chapter four. I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager, fighting to maintain that unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. One of the greatest things that we have as a church is this meal that God gave us, that Christ instituted the night he was betrayed to his church, his little flock right there. He said, guys, be unified around me. It's me. I'm the focus. And so as a church, this is what we do every week. We remember that Jesus said, this is my body that is broken for you. And every week we do this, we're all attesting to one another and to the Father, I believe that. We believe that together. This, this, this body, the, 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 the sacrifice of Christ that we remember takes precedence over my desires. This is more important than, than my petty ideas or arguments that I want to win. No, this is where I need to focus. This is what brings us unity. And then when we see this cup, Jesus said, this, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. As often as you drink it, do it in remembrance of me. Do you know what happens when we as a church stand up and we come and receive these, these, these elements and, and return to our seats to take them together? We can look at somebody and say, you know what, I was angry with them, but they're, they're on my team. <laughs> this is my fellow blood-washed believer, my brother, my sister in Christ. This is the one I'll be with 10,000 years from now in glory. What am I worried about? Let us look to Jesus and be unified and forgive each other and love each other and bring him great glory now and forevermore.